in the hobby. It's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking that we could pull, I don't know, Hall of Famer. But with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com. The only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy slab packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. There is nothing more fun than opening an Arena Club slab pack. I mean, it is so much better than any mystery pack that I've ever purchased because there is a focus on transparency. There is a display of available cards. There are hit rates you can get. When you're graded, you're given a rationale. It is the marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, and displaying. Arena Club Slab Packs are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your pulls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling. You can have them officially graded by Arena Club. The Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent, with a full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. Whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform you have to check out. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash badmoney. Wow, that's a crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack, that's $40 right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash badmoney for 10% off your first purchase. I love to track progress. As you guys know from listening to this show, I'm constantly tracking my progress. What have we done so far in 2024? And spring is in full bloom. Are your finances blooming too? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities for lower rates on loans like for a car or a home. You can use it everywhere Visa credit cards are accepted. That's right, you can build your credit using your own money. Get paid up to two days early with direct deposit. With a qualifying direct deposit, you can get access to your money sooner. Fee-free overdraft with SpotMe. Overdraft up to $200 without fees with SpotMe when you set up a qualified direct deposit. Just set up a qualifying direct deposit, sign up for SpotMe, and Chime will spot you up to your limit when you make a credit card purchase or cash withdrawal that exceeds your balance. Access 60,000 plus fee-free ATMs. That's more than the top three national banks combined. Easily find one near you with the Chime app. Send and receive money. Use Chime to pay anyone, Chime members or not, and cash out your money fee-free. With Chime's secure credit card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started at Chime.com slash bad money. That's Chime.com slash bad money. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. You got problems that you ought to be concerned with. Hoorah! You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now your healing has begun. It's bad with money with Gabby Dunn. Hiya, Deadbeats. I'm Gabby Dunn, and this is Bad With Money. Welcome to another week of staring straight into the terrifying face of the big bad money boogeyman. Boo. 
You might remember the episode last season where we talked all about how the healthcare system in America is sick and not in a cool skateboarder way. We talked a lot in that episode about how expensive healthcare has gotten and how people in the U.S. can crowdfund their way out of an unexpected medical bill. Make sure to update your fundraising page with the saddest details and include a very pathetic photo of yourself in your hospital bed. And if you don't want to do that, you can let the bills pile up and avoid debt collector's calls as you try to recover from testicular cancer. Those are both real stories. I'm sure you've had, or at least heard, several of your own. We have been failed by our country when it comes to healthcare, obviously. Now, maybe you've heard about this so much that it sounds like white noise at this point. But the fact is, the U.S. is the only country that doesn't provide some sort of universal health care out of a list of the top 50 most developed countries. Every single wealthy country on planet Earth makes sure you won't become homeless because you got in a bike accident or had a heart attack. Except ours. For example, have to spend the night in the hospital in France? It's going to cost the French version of you about 20 bucks out of pocket. American you? If you've got a good policy, maybe $500. If you're uninsured, fire up that you caring page. It doesn't have to be that way. This week, we talked to Kaiser Health News correspondent Shafali Luthra. She writes about proposed healthcare policies in Washington and what they mean for everyone. And so lately, she's been focused on Medicare for all. She just recently researched what Canadians think of our medical debt and what Canada's healthcare system would look like in the U.S. Healthcare as a right? Shocking stuff. Is Canada's system perfect? No. There's longer wait times and maybe less private rooms in hospitals, but you will not die waiting for care or waiting to be able to pay for care, and you will not go bankrupt or take out a second mortgage for health care. It comes down to privilege versus empathy. Why would Americans be against that? There are reasons. There are. And in the upcoming election, which 2020 Democratic candidates have specifically talked about Medicare for all? Which have mentioned other ideas for universal health care? Which have said the whole idea isn't practical? And could the real problem be rising drug costs? How could Medicare help gain leverage to lower drug prices? So let's jump in and see what a world with Medicare for all would look like, shall we? Don't jump too hard, though. If you break anything, you're fucked. I'm Shafali Luthra. I'm a journalist at Kaiser Health News in D.C. We are a nonprofit health policy newsroom run by the Kaiser Family Foundation, no relationship to Kaiser Permanente or any kind of insurance. And we like to do healthcare journalism. We think it makes the world better. And I write a lot about proposed policy changes in Washington and what they mean for real people. And lately, that's meant a lot of Medicare for all. Yeah. So what is Medicare for all? Like, what is it? Like people, uh, you know, it's a, it seems to be like a, a buzzy sort of talking point. But what is Medicare for all? So there are a couple of ways of thinking about this. And the way I start it is Medicare for All is the health proposal made popular by Bernie Sanders, right? Mm-hmm. And when he talks about it, he has legislation he's introduced in Congress that means we would design this new single-payer health care system in which everyone is covered by this program he calls Medicare that sounds like the, the Medicare program we have currently for senior citizens, but would be a lot more generous. It would cover vision. It would cover dental. It would cover prescription drugs. It would cover basically everything. You wouldn't pay any premiums or co-pays or deductibles. It would mostly be funded through different kinds of taxes. And it would render most private insurance 
more or less obsolete. You wouldn't be allowed to sell a private plan that competes with this government Medicare for all. So that's the main main Medicare for all idea. But this term has really morphed, especially as a lot of other candidates come in and want to talk about large-scale health reform. And so they say Medicare for all to really mean universal coverage. But there are lots of ways to get universal coverage. And that's the sort of policy complication that they're trying to tease out now as they run for office. So universal health care is an umbrella, and Medicare for all is one of the things that's under that umbrella? Absolutely. And one of the the biggest distinctions that I think people are starting to talk more about is, at least in this country, the role private insurance might play, right? And under Medicare for all specifically, there really wouldn't be much of a role for private insurance. And that's really complicated because a lot of Americans get their health insurance from their employer or through other private companies, and some of them like that and are nervous about what a government-provided program might do and if it would be as good. Yeah. what is that sort of a fear that is founded in anything? I mean, other countries, is this, what we're talking about is like what other countries have successfully implemented, right? Sort of. So we are of the Western, you know, OECD countries, the only one that hasn't figured out some kind of universal healthcare system. We pay the most for the worst outcomes, et cetera. But fun. This, not not ideal. Um, but yeah. the single payer system that Senator Sanders talks about is modeled very specifically on Canada. And Canada has this robust, big Medicare program that covers pretty much everyone. It doesn't actually cover vision, dental, or prescription. And so if we had what Senator Sanders is talking about, it would be perhaps one of the most generous health programs in the world. And there isn't anything quite like that. And Germany, the UK, France, they all have universal health care in different ways, but some of them leave a role for private insurance. Some make it nonprofit. Some, like in the UK, have the government you know, run the hospitals, and that's the NHS. So there are lots of different ways to achieve this end, and Medicare for All is the one that seems to have caught a lot of traction here. So you hear people, you know, I mean, talk about like, oh, if I could just go to Canada to get this or like, oh, like other countries, you know, when people on Twitter, they'll post like a long thread about something that happened healthcare wise here for them. And uh, you'll see responses from people in other countries being like, wait, what? Like, that's that's real. That's the situation for you guys. Is that an accurate depiction of what's going on in the other countries in the world? And is that like how we're viewed that we're sort of backwards for not having that or that we have like the like you said the worst outcome for the most expensive price so i can't speak to i mean what people say in every single country right i can tell you so i went on a reporting trip to canada god a couple years ago now and i mean things are pretty similar now to what they were then but every canadian i talked to when i described our system they were just they were pretty stunned and the idea that people wouldn't go to the hospital because they didn't have money or that they would rack up all this debt for medical expenses was really unheard of. And that said, the focus of my trip there was what would it look like to have a Canadian system here? And one theme that I got from a lot of doctors who had practiced on both sides of the Canadian-U.S. border was, you know, in Canada, they really talk about equity and healthcare is a right and everyone has access to the same baseline level of treatment. But that also means there are fancier bells and whistles in the United States that maybe we wouldn't quite have if we adopted a system more like Canada's. What kind of stuff? So what they talked about was, you know, private rooms, nicer hospitals, um, 
people do talk about wait times in Canada, and I think that gets complicated because when we talk about wait times, we aren't counting in all the people who wait their whole lives, right? Because they never mm. get care. Um, mm-hmm. And in Canada, the refrain I always heard was, you will not die because you are waiting for care. But you might have to wait longer to get a knee surgery, for instance. And that's a trade-off that people are willing to make because that means everyone has access. And that knee surgery is probably not going to put them in uh, like a sea of debt. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to be taking out a second mortgage to pay for your surgery. And here we have all of these stories because healthcare is very expensive here. But the high cost of healthcare and the lack of universal health insurance are two separate issues in some ways. And one of the aspects of Medicare for All is that it does talk about bringing down healthcare prices, but it's definitely not an issue that has been resolved even in countries that do have universal health care, if that makes sense. Yeah, things would care would still be expensive. It would just not be on you to pay for a lot of it. At least not when you go to the doctor's office, right? And like right. we would pay it in taxes. And who's mm-hmm. paying those taxes really depends. And I mean, I try and think about where I personally would factor in in a Medicare for all system. And it's hard to really know. I mean, would my taxes go up? Very possibly. Would I be paying less out of pocket for health care? That's also possible. So it's hard to really game out until we see the financing, what that would mean for your individual take home pay. But it does mean that you wouldn't put off health care because you're afraid of the bills. More from Shafali after the break. And now let's get back into it with Shafali. So there are different plans, obviously, coming from different candidates. And I was interested in in your article where you talked about Senator Sanders' proposal, how uh, he talked about Medicare for all, and then certain candidates are talking about Medicare for America. Can you explain the candidates who are doing that and, and how that's different? Sure. So Beto O'Rourke is the candidate who has explicitly said on the campaign trail, Medicare for America is this bill that I love. And then we have other folks who aren't really ready yet, it seems, to marry a proposal. And then you have, you know, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, you have Kamala Harris, you have Kirsten Gillibrand, et cetera, et cetera. And they all talk about lots of ideas. And one theme that comes up is many of them say we want to find a role for private insurance, maybe at least at first. And that's in part because we get at this idea that a lot of Americans maybe are afraid of losing their private insurance when they don't know what the government would promise. Mm-hmm. So Medicare for America is it's a bill that was introduced last Congress, hasn't come up yet. Um, and it, I've heard it described a lot of ways. But essentially, we would have two health insurance plans that are the dominant ones in this country. There's this Medicare proposal that is in some ways very similar to what Bernie Sanders talks about. Would cover vision, would cover dental, would be very generous, would cover almost everything. This one would require some cost sharing, some premiums, deductibles, which... A lot of folks further on the left do not love because they argue that it would mean some people would go without care rather than pay. And the other option is if you work for a very big employer and that employer wants to keep offering health benefits, they can. And you wouldn't pay more than, I believe, 10 percent of your income in premiums, et cetera. And if you want to opt into Medicare instead, you can. So it sort of leaves the option for private insurance in some cases on the table, but maybe the argument goes could create a more natural phase into a large group of people opting into Medicare. 
So it would kind of be a stepping stone to Medicare for all or it's it's a compromise. It could be a stepping stone to Medicare for all. And I think the folks who are behind that plan would be very hesitant to call it incremental because it also is, you know, a seismic change from what we have now. Either of these would be huge, huge differences from the system in place. That said, it does make more concessions to the concerns about financing by keeping cost sharing and to the concern about people afraid of losing private insurance. What is cost sharing? Cost sharing is so... When you go to the doctor, right, you pay a premium. Mm -hmm. That is one form of cost sharing. Then there are deductibles, which is, let's say my deductible is $1,000 or so. And then for mainly non-preventive things, I would be paying out of pocket my medical costs until I hit my deductible. And after that, everything would be covered. And these are a somewhat controversial. I mean, they're, you know, a standard feature of health insurance, but deductibles have been getting higher for several years now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so that's why we're seeing a lot more Americans seeing firsthand just how expensive healthcare is. So can you explain a bit for for my listeners and for me, I guess, uh, what (laughs) I like to pretend that the listeners are the ones who don't know things and it's really (laughs) me. Um, How does insurance work currently? That is such an important question. And you are now going to get into why I'm like deeply not fun at parties because these are the things that I find interesting. Girl, so, I haven't been fun at parties in years. Oh, I'm, I'm very glad to hear that I'm not alone. <laughs> um, but so basically in insurance, right, like everyone pays money and you're all in this pool together. Mm-hmm. And in its simplest form, right, the money in the pool is then put out to pay health expenses. So mm-hmm. what you want is a mix of healthy people and sicker people. And in theory, the healthier people are subsidizing the sicker people. And that's why, for instance, under the ACA, there was this really big push to get young people buying insurance and into the marketplace because young people are typically healthier. They typically cost less. And when they're also paying premiums, that means that there's money to pay out the expenses for those who are maybe older and sicker. So under Medicare for All, for instance, or a single payer, we would very likely all be in some sort of similar risk pool, right? And therefore, we're all sort of subsidizing each other. Mm -hmm. But so the private insurance companies are just basically companies that are competing for your business. Yeah, and I'm, right now, right, you, like you could have insurance through Cigna or through Aetna or Humana or Blue Cross, and those are all different. Mm-hmm. So besides Beto and um, and Bernie, who's mm-hmm. talked about each thing? So those are the two who've talked about these plans specifically. It is really hard right now, right, to be running, especially as a Democrat for president, and not be asked about healthcare. Of course, yeah. Um, But pretty much every other candidate who's been asked has said something to the effect of, I see Medicare for all as a goal. I want us to get there, often through maybe a public option, right, which is a government-provided plan that is an option. Yeah. And get us on the path there. Some talk about lowering the eligibility age for Medicare. Some talk about letting you buy in based on, you know, a sliding income scale or something like that. I'm trying to think if there's anyone who has said absolutely no Medicare for all. Um, and like maybe the closest is Senator Amy Klobuchar, who's more just said, you know, that's not really practical. Let's focus more on public option, bringing down drug prices, et cetera, et cetera. Got it. So it's either coming at it from the health insurance side or the bringing down costs side. Yeah. And I mean, drug costs right, are also a really big issue right Huge, now for most people. Crazy. Yeah, like, Prescription drugs are very expensive. They are more expensive here than in a lot of other countries. Um, And when people talk about Medicare for All, they talk also about using Medicare 
as a lever to negotiate lower prices. And no matter where you stand on Medicare for all, and in fact, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, like it's really hard not to talk about having some idea of how to bring down drug prices. Yeah. So, OK, we talked a bit about like how how they would be structured, I think, the Medicare for all and the Medicare for America. But why are people against it? What is the thing? Is it just this thing of like, we haven't done it before, so we don't want to do it now? Is it a thing of like, oh, but we want to try to keep taxes low? And is it rich people that don't want it? Like, what's going on? So there are a lot. To be fair, there are a lot of questions about Medicare for all. And the polling around this, I think, is very interesting. And it shows that when you just talk about Medicare for all in the abstract, people are super into it. But then when you tell them your taxes might go up or when you tell them that you would lose your private insurance option, support can really drop. So those are two questions. That's just, you know, general voters are not sure what they seem to want. And then, I mean, healthcare is a really, really big part of our economy. Hospitals are often the biggest employers in their communities, especially in rural communities. And hospitals would probably make less money under Medicare for All. Insurance would also, you know, stand to lose under Medicare for All. So would the pharmaceutical industry. So would a lot of doctors. And so you have questions about jobs and the economic footprint of changing such a big part of our economy and what that would mean for people. And those, it seems, are questions that are still being grappled with in a non-minimal way over the course of this debate. Sure. Yeah. Let's talk about the financial incentives like for or against. Sure. So one way to think about this that I find really helpful is there have been a lot of studies trying to game out what Medicare for all would cost. Yeah. And very often what we find is Medicare for all would cost, in a lot of studies, about the same, maybe a little less, maybe a little bit more than our current healthcare system, but would be covering way more people. Which yes. Which sort of right. raises the question, how are you doing that? And you're doing that because, in theory, you're saving money, right? You're trimming inefficiencies. Medicare generally pays less than does private insurance for a lot of healthcare services because it has really big negotiating power. Mm-hmm. Although we don't know under Medicare for all if it would pay more than Medicare currently does or not. That gets into questions of if we do see, you know, pretty much everyone getting paid by Medicare, are hospitals generally making less money? And it's not that money's being redirected, right? But we're just we're trying to spend less of it. And does that mean in a rural community a hospital that's already struggling, maybe can't make ends meet? It could. We don't yeah. know that. And so I think that's the sort of the big question. And also like jobs, right? We don't know what would happen if we got rid of a whole private insurance industry. How Obviously, the government would need to hire more people to run its big program, but would it be hiring all those people? Probably not. Do we need job training? Is that a thing that should be considered? And that's another question that you hear progressives talking about. Yeah, because I guess the people that work at the insurance company they would all be out of a job. Yeah, and that raises questions. I mean, in Pramila Jayapal, who is the lead on the bill in the House, she has talked about trying to include some form of job training or, you know, ways to help transition people who lose their jobs in the transition to other other employment opportunities. But what would that look like? What might those jobs be? Those are questions that we still don't have answers to. And is there any... I mean, I guess you were talking about wait times and stuff. God, this is so it just seems so um, I I, forgive me. I talk about the purge a lot on the show. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's like that thing of if you're wealthier, if you're a certain level of person, you're used to this treatment where you're like, well, I I want my quick uh, in and out and I want my private room. 
and I don't care about the other people. So like a lot of times on this show, it comes down to like this thing about empathy or like this, these growing pains that we have to go through in order to like reach a more em- empathetic state of being that the U.S. seems to not want to do. <laughs> I think a lot about this theme that I came away with after going to Canada and spending time thinking about their healthcare system was in a lot of other countries, they seem to have answered a values question, which we're still grappling with here, which is, as a country, do you decide that you treat healthcare as a basic right and necessity? Mm-hmm. And if you do, then you approach it in one way. And if you don't, you approach it in a different way. And it seems that answering that question is probably a big part of answering the question of whether and how you want to approach your universal health care system. What is America about? Like, who are we? It's very, like, deep. It's like a kind of existential question, isn't it? Yeah. And, and like, I so I was reading, you know, people that are opposed are saying that people will abuse the system. How, how could they do that? Do you overuse the system, right? Do you go to the hospital for every tiny little thing? Do we indulge hypochondriacs? Those are sorts of the questions that I hear. Or if you're a doctor, I mean, there are questions about people who defraud Medicare, right? And that's a thing that happens. And sometimes it's overblown in terms of how much it happens. But do you worry that if the government is footing the bill for every medical service that people will commit fraud and abuse? What do you mean? Fraud fraud how? Billing for treatments you didn't perform, for instance, or charging for the highest, most expensive service when it's not actually necessary because you get paid more and then the taxpayers are paying that. And I mean, going beyond that, just it would be a very expensive proposition, right? We would have to raise taxes. And are people prepared for that, I think, is one of the bigger questions that is still being untangled. I mean, is there any world in which we just cut the defense budget or we cut because it comes down to, again, like what America values, right? Like, is there any anyone talking about or any proposals of like, what if we just don't do as much war? I mean, I'm not a defense reporter, um, so I can, <laughs> I can speak about the healthcare policy elements, but I could not tell you what other fundraising mechanisms are on the table. Yeah, for sure. I just curious if any candidates had said anything about it. So if you look at right, I mean, Look at someone like Elizabeth Warren who talks about the wealth tax. Look at someone like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez who talks about, you know, raising taxes on certain top income performers. And those those are part of, it seems, of maybe a broader narrative of how you approach financing programs like Medicare for All. Mm-hmm. One thing that I think is interesting is the healthcare industrial complex is very large, right, and has very large lobbying influence and... There are a lot of questions that haven't yet been answered in terms of how much would, if the government is paying for every healthcare service, I mean, how much would doctors get paid for different services? And doctors in the past have been a very powerful lobby around what Medicare pays for different oh, yeah. services. So, I mean, that does raise questions of how expensive would this be? And do we really know that yet? And until we know that, can we sort of appropriately get a sense for what it would cost to do it? Those seem like questions worth thinking about a bit more. And then the other thing that isn't really a part of the discussion right now, but if this were ever to become talked about in a serious way on Capitol Hill, would be what services do you actually cover? And one example that I think is you know, really emblematic of this is abortion. Yes. And, yeah, I mean, like the single payer bills do talk about covering abortion, 
technically it's right now illegal to cover abortion with public dollars. And that's a very polarizing issue in this country. And do you stick with it? Do you drop it in the hope it gets Medicare for all passed? And how do how does that speak to sort of where these proposals actually are in terms of what they will or won't cover? Oh, yeah, that's fascinating. So is that a thing that could be dropped from it? And then it's like, okay, we just won't we won't cover abortions. Now will you pass this like as a bargaining tool? Every health economist I've talked to has raised this question at some point. Yeah. Like, I mean, we we know how polarizing abortion is in this country, and we know how difficult it is to get expensive programs passed. And the maneuvering around this on Capitol Hill is really complicated and can get very, very tricky and very nuanced and it seems very difficult to speculate what a final legislative package would end up looking like, but it could be very different from what it is now in order to get the votes it needs. Is there anything about people viewing, like, how much they spend out of pocket on healthcare to be, like, a a thing where they're like, okay, I'm getting a better... Because would you be able to go... You There's a whole thing of, like, you would have to go to a different doctor, you would have to go to a different hospital or whatever. So this actually gets to a couple of really interesting points, one of which is technically Medicare for all under Bernie Sanders' bill, it would be the only health plan in the country, right? Mm -hmm. Which means it would probably cover most doctors and hospitals. Otherwise, those doctors and hospitals wouldn't really be able to contract with health plans. Right. So the odds of you not being able to see your doctor, unless that doctor stopped operating because the economics didn't work out, like that, that seems like that's a tricky argument to make. Right. Um, there are different, like, certainly if your health plan changes and there are multiple options, you could lose your doctor or your hospital. But it's harder for me to see how, quite understand how that works under a single-payer system. Um, the other thing that I think is actually really interesting is so the folks at the Kaiser Family Foundation who do, like, the policy research and analysis, um, with whom, by the way, we are, like, completely editorially separate. We don't really work with them other than, like, to read their very interesting smart work. They have put together this very cool model that tries to estimate in general how much people spend out of pocket on their health care versus what they might pay in taxes. And it's super helpful in gaming through sort of this question, right? Because we do pay a lot out of pocket for health care right now in our premiums and deductibles and co-pays. And there are certainly people who would do much better even in the higher tax world of a Medicare for all type system. So basically what you're saying is that they that it might just shake out that you actually are paying less. There are certainly people who could be. And I mean, on the other hand, there are people whose taxes would go way up and who would see their health expenses drop and would probably pay more. Just healthcare always has winners and losers. And the question is who wins and who loses in each system. Yeah. And who who is winning and who is losing? I mean, right now, right, if you are struggling to pay basic medical bills, you're probably looking for something different. And I mean, it is clear that for so many people in this country, the healthcare system is not working. Mm -hmm. And it seems like that's in a large part why healthcare was such an important part of the 2018 election and continues to be a big part of the 2020 election. Um, So let's talk about the salaries of the people at the top of these companies and like how health insurance being for profit is sort of making people at the top rich. 
I think that's an interesting way, and there are a lot of avenues I want to get at this issue. And one is that we do focus a lot on insurance in our discussion of healthcare. Insurance is obviously a big part of how healthcare costs and spending works. They are certainly not the only actor in in the complex healthcare economy, right? Hospitals also charge much higher prices here than they do in pretty much every other country. Mm-hmm. which is interesting and sort of contributes also to why we have really high healthcare spending. We also see, you know, for every hospital that's struggling and on the verge of shutting down, others that are doing more than just fine and are maybe advertising on national television about their very fancy liver transplant services. Yeah. Um, the question also of for-profit versus non-profit health insurance is one that I just think is so interesting. And I think a lot about Germany's healthcare system where they also have universal health care. It's not like Medicare for all, though, because private insurance exists there. But if my understanding is correct, insurance is not for profit. And Really? Yeah. I mean, that's how it, that is how it works in other countries. And the for-profit health insurance system is in some ways like quite American and does exist in other countries, but it's striking that it's one that we take for granted. How does it work as in Germany as a nonprofit? I brought this up, but like, I'm also not like the foremost expert on Germany yet. I like, have plans to go there for a reporting trip in which like, I hope to learn more about how the German healthcare system works. But so, yeah, they have like sickness funds and not-for-profits and insurance is paid for in part by employer taxes and in part by, you know, people taxes. And you can opt into the public system or private systems. But I like, guess closer to like a multi-payer universal healthcare system in which profit is less of a thing and the public health insurance system is seen as broadly the best option. Wow. It is crazy that in America we think of ourselves as being so central and we're like, well, yeah, America, that's the that's the leader, that's the main way, that's all of it. And then it's like, no, you're pretty behind actually. The Commonwealth Fund is this really great think tank that does smart work on healthcare also, and they put out rankings every now and then of western healthcare systems. So they rank Canada and the US and Germany and the Netherlands and the UK and Australia and New Zealand and all those places. We consistently rank at the bottom. Um Yeah. But it's interesting to look at some of these different European countries, especially because Canada's, I think they were last, like, if we were 11th, they were maybe, like, 9th or 10th. Oh. So, like, not that much, not, I think 9th, not that much better than us, um, but better. But it's interesting to look at all of these very different healthcare systems that exist around mainly the European continent that all take very different approaches to healthcare. Some keeping a private insurance system intact, some, you know, having an NHS-style system, and all using it to achieve universal health care and generally better outcomes than us. Who's number one? Let's see. I feel like it's either Switzerland or Denmark or Sweden. Those those Scandinavian countries, they love to be happy. So the last re- the most recent report I'm finding right now as I'm talking to you is from 2017. Mm-hmm. And at the time, the UK ranked number one. Really? So that was that was this was 2017. So okay. it was two years ago now. The UK was number one. Australia was number two. The Netherlands were number three. The Netherlands are interesting because they have private insurance. And if the ACA, when it was written, it was supposed to be very similar to the Netherlands system. And yeah. obviously it didn't quite work out in a lot of ways, in part because Medicaid expansion is optional and the markets have had some issues. But the Netherlands were a model for us. And I, I think that's a really interesting thing to see that they're 
ranked quite highly. Wow. Let's okay. So great, Netherlands. Let's uh, let's legalize <laughs> and decriminalize marijuana. Let's get that healthcare. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, but the point goes right that there are just there are a lot of ways to get at this, um, and a serious discussion at some point probably involves looking at a lot of them and thinking critically about what works best for us. Yeah. I wanted to sort of maybe get into, like, I guess for the average person, the average person who doesn't have health insurance right now, let's say they're listening and they don't have health insurance because they just can't afford it. Like, what would be the thing that they should be looking out to vote for or what do they, what would, like, help them the most? I think a couple of ways to think about this. One is the fact that, quite frankly, unless the Democrats have the Senate and the House and the White House, health reform seems like it would be a very remote possibility. Yeah. Um, very, very immediately, if you don't have health insurance, your best bet, assuming you fall into the income bracket, I imagine, would be to see where your state is on Medicaid expansion. Mm-hmm which is part of the ACA, right? States can expand Medicaid eligibility and that cover that's responsible for most of the health insurance expansions from the Affordable Care Act. And if your state did not expand Medicaid, maybe look into why and whether that's something that could realistically be changed because there are a lot of states that seem like if a few things changed here and there, that would be a substantive possibility. That mm-hmm. seems like it's the most immediate and likely course of acquiring health care. Long term would be looking at more like reading through the plans that different politicians are talking about and thinking about what might actually, you know, bring insurance for you. Most of these would be dramatic expansions of healthcare. Yeah. But they require very, very big changes to become reality. Yeah. So a lot of candidates are probably promising stuff that would be ideal, but maybe not doable. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't still be like, that's great. That Like, you should, let's get you in there and see what happens. But, um, oh, yeah, I mean, these are all important things to learn about, for sure. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's, that what you just said is helpful for, for people, because I think um, they just don't, they're just like, this is not a thing that can happen for me. Or even if you do have insurance, the sort of thing of like, yeah, I'm not going to call an ambulance. That's $3,000. I'm not going to. And then you hear stories of people who are just like, yeah, I don't want, I'm not going to get this medication. And then they die. That the insulin rationing is, it's, I don't even know what to say about it. Oh, yes. Let's talk about that. There, There's a thing going on right now that I've seen where people, they're rationing insulin. And so people are like on GoFundMe um, raising money to get insulin. Diabetics who that's like they need that every day. The price of insulin has skyrocketed in recent years. And it's really, really such a post, become such a poster child of the issues in the prescription drug market because this is the same drug it always has been. And we're just seeing it get more expensive. And it does seem that that is one area where there is real hope and interest in taking on drug pricing. And insulin is an, like a refrain you hear a lot from politicians in Congress. Interesting. I mean, that's that said, yeah, like industry is a very powerful opponent. The pharmaceutical lobby is one of the m- most moneyed on Capitol Hill. So it's also not an easy fight to win, but one where it. There have definitely been strong, strong advocacy and discussion about change. Yeah. Is that more of a likely thing to happen is taking on the high drug prices? Like why? Why is the why is insulin becoming more expensive? 
Because it can, right? Right. Um, Okay. Yeah, I mean, and, yeah, there's broadly research that shows that drug prices become more expensive often because they can. And pharmaceutical companies will say that they need to raise prices to fund research and development. It's not clear if that's always actually true. There are a lot of efforts to get companies to be more transparent about how much they actually spend on researching and developing new drugs and how much they spend on things like marketing those drugs. That said, the conventional wisdom that I hear here suggests that drug pricing is one area where there is the greatest likelihood of some sort of political or policy-making change. Mm -hmm. That said, it it feels like we live in a world where predicting anything is so hard to do. For sure, yeah. It's less of an overhaul, though, I guess. But it is sort of a a Band-Aid on a bullet hole. We're talking about medical care. God, I actually once referenced that in a story and then realized later it was a Taylor Swift lyric that I'd forgotten about. <laughs> um, I don't think it's I don't think she invented it, did she? No. You're you're right she didn't, but also like I'm sorry. I like that song had Kendrick Lamar and it was really important to me at that time <laughs> in my life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I hear you. It it popularized perhaps the <laughs> phrase, yeah. So so you're like now it's in your head and then you write about healthcare and you're like, mm-hmm. well, Taylor Swift, here you are. Yeah, exactly. You know, noted healthcare advocate Taylor Swift. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, it all just sounds very dystopian. Um, I'm glad this was just a, an uplifting episode for everyone. This has been so interesting and so much fun, though. Thank you for having me. Oh, no problem. I think, like, it's a topic that a lot of our listeners you know, they're trying to get their financial lives together and they're trying to be more aware of this stuff. But there are these obstacles that if you are diabetic or if you do have some sort of chronic illness or anything, like something comes up, you need knee surgery, whatever. It's like everyone just goes, good luck. The thing about financial planning for healthcare, right, is that it just seems really hard to do. How can you? Healthcare is very expensive and most people don't have the money for a medical emergency. Well... See you in the Hunger Games. <laughs> Thanks so much. This has been fun. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much, Vali. I appreciate it. This, like many topics we've covered on the show, seems to come down to empathy. In my time doing bad with money, I've been surprised by just how often empathy comes up in the money conversation. Most of the big changes we need to make to ensure people have access to what they need to live comes down to being empathetic to the situations of those that have less than we do or those who are in situations we feel they are to blame for. Like Shafali said, we have to ask ourselves what we value in this country and whether, like most other developed countries, we think healthcare is a right. Bad With Money is a production of Stitcher. Our show is produced and edited by Melissa Yeager-Miller and sound engineered and mixed by Brendan Burns. Our associate producer is Kristen Torres and our supervising producer is Josephine Martirana. Our executive producer is Chris Bannon. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera and was written by Mike Kaplan, Zach Sherwin, and Jack Dolgen. I'm Gabby Dunn, and I'll talk to you next week.